Hello everyone and welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live uh, broadcast which is guided by your Bible questions. That's right, you can send in your questions on the Bible through multiple online platforms where we're streaming live and uh, we will use scripture to find the answers to those questions. So it could be a verse or passage of scripture uh, you know, in particular that you would like to be uh, expounded upon or maybe something even going on in your life and your, your world and you'd like a biblical perspective, uh, maybe even other uh, worldviews and other religions and things that you think might contradict scripture or um, you know, many, many questions that you may have. As long as it's an honest question, as long as you know that we're going to use the Bible for the source of those answers, that's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. So we're glad that you're joining us and providing us those questions to create our content here today. And my name is Dave Robson. I'll be hosting and fielding those questions as they come on in. Uh, with us today as well, our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, Pastor Scott Richards. How are you doing today? Good, good. Yeah. Lots of exciting things going on. Got a yeah. prophecy update. In the room, oh, so. Great, great. Looking forward to that. We'll get to that in just a moment. And uh, Pastor Sean Richards as well. How are you doing today? I am sad. You're sad? Why are you sad? I tried using this thing in a rock, paper, scissors contest, but my opponent kept using scissors. <laughs> yeah, that would limit your... Uh, yeah, your options would be limited yeah, there. Nice try. <laughs> yeah. You need two others kind of like it, but with the other, the other hand gestures there. Well, I'm sorry. I hope you get cheered up on the show today as we carry on. <laughs> it's a cheery program. It is a cheery program. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, A Reason for Hope, it's a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 uh, p.m. here Mountain Standard Time. That's uh, in Tucson, Arizona, where we're based. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship. So keep that in mind when you're trying to find us. And if you're in the Tucson area and would like uh, somewhere to worship, the Lord um, and serve him. Uh, come check us out. We're right by uh, Princeton I-10 on the west side of the freeway. We'd love to have you come visit. Um, but while you're at our website at calvarychristianfellowship.com, you can have a click around there. We have lots of um, things going on. We live stream our services and all that as well. So you're welcome to partake in all of those things. But for the purposes of tonight, if you go to calvarychristianfellowship.com and follow that, what, that uh, live tab, um, watch live tab, I should say, it will take you to our live page. The direct link of that is ccftucson.online.church. And when we're offline, you'll see a countdown to the next time we're going to be live. You'll see a schedule of upcoming events. Like I mentioned, our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, but also a reason for hope Monday through Friday. But when we're online, you'll see our video. You can sign in with the username of your choice and then use the chat function to send in your questions. And I'll be monitoring those um, as we go along on the show live today. We're on Facebook as, as well, streaming live there, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson and don't forget to like and to share us around if you've been blessed by this ministry we'd appreciate that but that's also another way to send your question in just in the chat function right there um, we have an app for your mobile device as well whether it's iPhone or Android just go to your uh, app store and look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson you can download our app and you can interact with us there also and we have a channel on Roku and we have a channel on Apple TV so if you go to your channel store and uh, add us on there. You can watch us on your big screen if you have one of those devices. Of course, we're on YouTube. Search for A Reason for Hope. That's a good place to go if you would like to catch up on shows that you missed or maybe recap. If you go to that live tab right there, anytime we've been live at all, it's archived there automatically. Um, so you can browse through our past uh, shows and, uh, and join us that way as well. Of course, we're live there right now. Don't forget to like and subscribe and which you can share us around, copy the links and stuff like that, and click on that notification bell. That means you'll get 
a little notification when we go live um, in case you're forgetful and like a little poke. So YouTube there for you. Um, our pastor Scott here is on Twitter. Scott R4H is, is his handle where he posts highlights from the show and questions from the show, but also kind of commentary on world events. There's so much going on, as he mentioned. There's a bit of a prophecy update. You'll find things like that on Twitter as well and all kinds of um, also shenanigans and uh, um, uh, what's the tomfoolery? That's the word yes. that you use. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Both shenanigans. Healthy and doses of tomfoolery <laughs> <Yes>. are available. <laughs> yes. What is the healthy dose for, <laughs> yeah. for tomfoolery? I don't know. But yeah. again, Scott R4H, you'll find him there on Twitter if you're on Twitter. Uh, we're on Rumble now as well. We post, uh, we're not live there, but we post um, um, archive of our shows and other videos there as well. So look for A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A on Rumble. And uh, that's where we're at. So that's kind of a newer to us platform. Um, if you're on Rumble, uh, look for us there too. And last but not least, of course, we have an email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope all spelled out at gmail.com. You'll want to use that if you're listening to us on the radio as you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you per se, um, but use that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we'll get to that question on uh, one of our upcoming shows, the next show. And then consider joining us when you're not on your drive time. Jump on one of those other platforms where we are live, live as can be, and it is very exciting. We never really know where the show is going to go because, as I mentioned, it is guided by your questions, so please do send your Bible questions in. Um, I had someone tell me the other day that they, they rarely send a question in, but people send questions in that, that on his mind and heart as well. So you never know who you're gonna minister to when you send your question in, when you're brave enough. Other people I'm sure have that question on their hearts and minds. So do send those questions in. Like I say, there's no stupid question as long as there's an honest question of the heart and you know that we're gonna delve into scripture to find the answer. So that's what we're all about. Get those questions in early and we'll try and do a first come first serve basis over here as far as we can. But before we go any further, we always like to pause and pray. We're, we're aware that we're handling God's word. We want him to speak more than we do, as Sean often says. So, Sean, would you like to pray today for us? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. God, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word. Equip us to be able to represent your heart as well as your words accurately. Allow your people to not only ask questions that are from the heart, but are relevant to your word. And that as we have the opportunity to be involved with both, that you would be glorified as a result of all of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 It's true. Well, Scott, you mentioned there was a bit of a prophecy update. What's, what's going on? Well, as uh, we want to uh, share with you, uh, that uh, uh, when it comes to biblical prophecy, we always want to keep our eyes on what's going on in Israel. And in uh, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that one of the signs of uh, his imminent return would be wars and rumors of wars, specifically as they relate uh, to Israel itself. Well, uh, the uh, the uh, events going on in Israel certainly uh, have uh, intersected along that line. Uh, a uh, massive operation has taken place in light of a planned attack on Israel by the Iranian state-sponsored group Islamic Jihad, which is based in Gaza. Uh, Israel decided not to wait for them to uh, launch their attacks that they had planned. They did a preemptive strike, taking out three key major leaders of Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Uh, the implications of uh, the loss of these leaders uh, can't be overestimated. Uh, you might recall a few years ago how uh, the United States uh, took out the head honcho in charge of Iran's 
uh, misadventures and terroristic activities in that region. A fellow by the name of Suleimani took him out with a, uh, uh, a Reaper drone strike uh, while he was traveling in Iraq. And that set back uh, Iran's plans uh, very significantly because uh, this uh, Soleimani was a military and terroristic genius. Uh, well, a very similar thing has happened as far as Islamic Jihad goes and uh, their ongoing uh, war against Israel. Uh, 350 rockets have been launched at last count from Gaza into Israel. A full third of them landed without crossing the border of Gaza into Israeli territory. Uh, the others have been taken out uh, not just by the Iron Dome uh, defense system, but the David's Sling defense system apparently took out a uh, Islamic Jihad rocket that was on its way into Tel Aviv. So This is uh, where we throw back our heads and laugh. Yeah. So uh, the, uh, the attacks uh, that Islamic Jihad is doing, largely face-saving in their nature, uh, have had a, a profound impact upon the region in general because, as you know, uh, for the last few months there has been a, a major division uh, among the Israeli people regarding judicial form, reform that the, the new Netanyahu government wanted to bring about, uh, essentially bringing the judiciary back into a uh, parallel as far as responsibility and authority goes. Uh, with the legislative branch uh, in Israel, their form of government uh, different than ours. Uh, but uh, the whole idea of checks and balances is also germane in that situation. Well, as you recall, there were large protests, both pro and con uh, this legislation, and uh, the Israeli public seemed to be very, very divided. And an Israeli public divided uh, protesting against each other uh, on the streets is certainly an open invitation uh, for the enemies of Israel to take advantage of and uh, try to strike Israel, at the very least, uh, while they are uh, distracted. But it appears that this uh, massive uh, rocket attack, uh, Joel Rosenberg's All Israel News website now updates us that more than 470 uh, rockets have been fired at Israel from uh, Gaza. And uh, this seems to have united uh, the Jewish people together. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has met with opposition leader Yair Lapid, who was one of the two caretaker prime ministers in the other cobbled together government. You might have heard us mention his name before, but they are definitely on the same page. Benjamin Netanyahu uh, issued uh, this statement uh, on Twitter in Hebrew. He said a week ago, against the background of Islamic Jihad's missile attack, on the settlement of Otaf, we decided to hit the heads of the terrorists responsible for the shooting. We acted firmly and calmly while uh, carefully compartmentalizing in order to take advantage of the right moment for the success of the mission. I understand very well the desire to immediately hurt those who hurt us. It is understandable, it is also natural, but it has already been said, uh, with tricks you will make war, which is an old Yiddish saying. This is how we act, and this is how we always act against those who seek our souls, but we do it on our own terms at a time and a place we choose. Now, the reason he's emphasizing that is because you may recall earlier this, uh, or later last week, uh, we talked about a fissure in the coalition that Benjamin Netanyahu has put together that allows him to be prime minister uh, with Ithamar Ben-Giver, uh, a very, um, well, I would say a very uh, uh, right-leaning uh, individual uh, being appointed to being the head of security over Israel. Uh, he felt uh, that in light of this Islamic Jihad attack 
uh, on Otomar uh, that uh, the fact that there was no response to it was completely inappropriate and even talked about withdrawing his support for the Netanyahu government. So we can see that Benjamin Netanyahu was saying just because we don't see an immediate response doesn't mean there isn't going to be a response. He went on to say, and this is Benjamin Netanyahu speaking, uh, I say to our enemies, any escalation on your part will be met with a crushing response on our part. And I want to say one more thing. We are all standing in this battle together as brothers. I think it's really interesting that he makes that statement uh, because essentially what he is telegraphing to uh, say the mad mullahs in uh, Tehran who are controlling and pulling the strings on these uh, various terrorist entities, uh, that uh, if you think for a moment that Israel is going to be divided and hence vulnerable, you'd better think again. He said, at the moment of truth, everyone stands up. This is the true spirit of our people, uh, who, which knows how to unite in the face of every challenge. And with this spirit and with God, God's help, uh, we will win. Uh, he said, Israel's policy is clear. Our message to the terrorists is also clear. You can run, you can hide, but at the end, Israel will get you. So um, again, this uh, assessment by Benjamin Netanyahu is, is playing out there. There is talk right now of a, an Egyptian brokered ceasefire being negotiated between Islamic Jihad and Israel. Uh, Islamic Jihad at uh, our last check-in here uh, has not responded to this overture. I think there's a lot of face-saving they need to do, particularly in light of the fact that they lost three of uh, their, their key strategists uh, being taken out by Israel. And uh, I think you're going to see uh, them trying their best to show that they are strong so that uh, the people on the ground in Gaza don't lose uh, confidence in them. The other thing that we really need to be uh, alert and aware of is this. So far, Hamas, the other terrorist group that dominates in Gaza, has stayed out of it. Uh, they have not launched any of their missiles. They have communicated sympathy to their brothers in the cause, but they have not gotten involved with launching any missiles at Israel. Now, why that is happening, uh, we're not exactly sure. Uh, the, maybe they are feeling that uh, their leadership uh, is going to be the next to go. If Israel had such fantastic intelligence, they were able to take out by missile attack three of these key leaders of Islamic Jihad. Well, three leaders of uh, Hamas would be no problem. The other wild card, obviously, is that we have seen uh, some sporadic launching of missiles from uh, the Hezbollah terrorist group in Lebanon. Now, they are armed to the gills with missiles over there. I mean, estimates up to 250,000 missiles uh, at their disposal. And uh, if uh, Hezbollah decides to get involved with all of this, or and because, again, they are a wholly owned subsidiary of the Iranians again, uh, it will be very interesting to see what this looks like. Now, you might recall, it was like, again, a year ago in March, where a very similar uh, missile exchange took place, and uh, Hezbollah did launch a few rockets. Most came from Gaza. Most were uh, Hamas, and maybe Hamas isn't getting involved because uh, maybe they've run out of rockets or uh, are worried about uh, uh, depleting their supplies and so on. But uh, the, the thing to watch would be to see if uh, the Iranians, who are fighting a proxy war with Israel, there's no doubt about it, uh, take uh, Hezbollah off the chain and allow them to be able to attack Israel from their emplacements in Lebanon. The other wild card in all of this, wait, there's more, 
the United States has parked a nuclear-capable submarine just off the coast of Iran in the Persian Gulf. So that may be uh, one of the reasons that Iran is sort of pulling the chain on their dominant terrorist power in the region, and that would be uh, the uh, Hezbollah guerrillas in Lebanon. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, pray for the protection of the Jewish people. Pray for the innocent people uh, in Gaza who find themselves, uh, unfortunately, uh, in harm's way because one of the strategies these terrorists employ is to set up, say, uh, rocket launchers in playgrounds and on the uh, rooftops of hospitals and things along this line so that if they are taken out, they at least get a photo opportunity to be able to tell the West how terrible and barbaric the Israelis are. Um, you know, the, the, the sad thing is, is that it's uh, the people that are caught in the crosshairs that uh, end up paying this price. There have been some pretty spectacular feeds. We posted one on our Twitter feed. You can take a look at that at scottr4h, twitter.com, uh, that uh, showed some of the uh, footage of uh, the IDF taking out uh, a number of these uh, hidden missile launchers that are in orchards and buildings and things along this line and uh, really pretty spectacular things. But pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the people that are caught in harm's way. Pray for the safety, especially of uh, the Jewish people that uh, occupy uh, some of the areas just outside the boundaries of Gaza and places like Sederot. Uh, they are literally a stone's throw away from uh, being in the targets of these kind of terrorists. So uh, generally speaking, I think what you can forecast on this is that uh, Islamic Jihad will attempt to do a face-saving measure of launching a number of missiles. Israel will respond with their Iron Dome and David's sling. Uh, tactics interesting and sort of ominous that uh, Netanyahu and uh, the IDF defense chief have said that uh, this military operation is not over and can certainly expand if need be. So we'll have to see what happens going forward after this. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Thank you yeah. for that. Thank you for that update. Calls for prayer indeed, as always. That's something we can we can do. We can pray. Well, we have questions uh, coming in, if you guys are ready to delve right in here. Yeah, let's do it. Um, Nothing like a little delving on a Wednesday. No, that's right. <laughs> I do use that word a lot, don't I? I need to uh, take that out of my brain. Yeah, yeah. Make another word. Yeah. My thesaurus. I like it. <laughs> Delving. Very British. Do you think so? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, question from um, uh, from Kenneth. He was uh, had some questions about gender disorders. Of course, gender is a huge discussion an issue in our world right now um he asked why would god allow gender disorders um if god doesn't tempt us beyond what we can handle which that is actually true yes um it was something we can address uh he, he said his friend has ais syndrome um what can i tell her or him as a christian i guess a ais i just uh, androgen insensitivity myself, syndrome it occurs exclusively in males so him but it's just basically the idea of your body having a unnatural resistance towards sexual maturity so in an xy chromosome born biological male individual they just don't show the sort of uh, testosterone and development and sometimes show more neutral if not feminine traits yeah. but the idea is of course if we're going to <laughs> look at uh, this syndrome among many others it's oftentimes a red herring when people try and bring this stuff up especially with that passage i don't know what that has to do with anything. But the idea of God not tempting us beyond what we're able and just having a biological disposition, it's no more an objection to a relationship with God than me hearing things and uh, seeing things. When 
the narrowing of my brain cavity, for instance, occurs within one of 300 people. There's also the idea of this kind of syndrome occurring in around 100 times least likely, and that's because it is, in fact, a very rare, but certainly a very deliberate, note this, defined disorder, that there was a structure that God designed us in, and that because of our separation from him, things go wrong. So if I were to look at my natural disposition and say, why would God uh, allow this event to take place? Uh, Boalette in the Northridge earthquake, um, you know, just, Me coming down with cancer. Yeah, yeah. those sort of things. Yeah. If we say biological uh, dispositions, why would God allow me to have this condition, which again, I'd question them claiming something and that actually being the case are two different things. Let's just say the benefit of the doubt and note that an extremely rare genetic disorder took place in someone's life. What does this have to do with God? And the answer is nothing. If we ask someone, okay, I have this disability, this disorder, this condition, or this uh, situation in my life that I have to deal with, to the non-believer, it means absolutely nothing as far as their relationship with Jesus is concerned, because it's just one symptom of many of the fact they need a Savior. They're in a world separated from God, the source of everything perfect and good, the one who designed our bodies to function in a particular way, and of course now they don't always do that. The fact that we're separated from God and then blame him for the thing that we caused is kind of silly. But then if we take a step back and ask, what about a believer? What if this person's a Christian and says, why would God give me this condition? It's made me infertile. It's made it so that uh, relationships in my life ultimately have to be taken into consideration. I can't have kids, but I repeat myself in regards to infertile. Why would God let this happen to me? And Jesus made a statement, speaking to believers, said that there are some who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. There are some who have been made eunuchs by men. But when it comes to the condition, and this is an uh, answer, again, to a believer, not to a non-believer who's leveling this unfair objection towards God, the idea that I have this condition, and it was in John chapter 9, a man that was born blind, something he didn't ask but something that came naturally as a result of his birth. And the apostles, being the unhelpful group that they were at the time, said, who sinned? Who sinned? Who caused this to happen? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither, but that the glory of God would be manifest in him. And it ultimately put him in a position where God could do a work in his life through his, note this, disability. And this is more than just a developmental issue, like he couldn't use his eyes. That, that, that's, a, that's a big disability. And he came to a saving relationship with the Lord. He received eternally significant healing as a result of something that was not only a witness to the Pharisees who cast him out of the synagogue, to his parents in knowing that he was born blind, and yet for some reason his interaction with Jesus fixed that issue. But on top of that, he then found Jesus having nowhere else to go and said, um, what, what do I do? And he says, well, do you believe that I'm the son of man? And right. he worshiped him. Right. So the point being made is this. To a non-believer that levels the problem of natural evil, which is usually what's being brought up here, why would God allow this sort of world to function apart from him? And the answer is our sin. But it's a non-issue if they say that God owes us an existence with him 
and apart from him at the same time. There are natural consequences to separating yourself from the source of everything good and perfect. But if, on the other hand, you're talking to a believer who's just kind of struggling with the fact that they've been born a eunuch in this case, then they just have to say, you know what, instead of asking why, ask what. What can I do with this? Since your friend's not a believer, there's no point in addressing that. But just note, it's a red herring. It's not actually dealing with the real issue, which is whether or not they are going to spend not this life in the biological place that they want to be, but in the spiritual place that they ought to be. Until they know Jesus, questions like this mean nothing. Yeah. You know, when we think about uh, people that struggle uh, with genetic uh, conditions, yeah. and we ask ourselves, okay, where is God in the middle of all of this? Um, you know, I think I can speak directly to this issue because uh, my grandfather uh, was diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, when he was age 60. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, uh, it was about. Uh, two weeks after my 60th birthday, when I was diagnosed with wow. prostate cancer. And then my brother, who was 13 months older than I was, was also diagnosed with the same form, wow. the same aggressive form of prostate cancer that my grandfather had. Wow. Now, I'm no expert on <laughs> Mendelian genetics, yeah. but I would say that if you've got two brothers who come down with the precise same strain and uh, degree of cancer yep. that uh, a ancestor had, a near ancestor, my grandfather in this case, I'd say pretty good uh, possibility that was baked into our genetic pie. Yeah. Um, just waiting for that moment to manifest itself. Yeah. So when that happens, you know, what do you do with that? Uh, do we say, well, God made me that way. Uh, he created me to have uh, this uh, particular uh, malady. And boy, I'll tell you what, if it hadn't been for a number of uh, uh, amazing divine interventions, I wouldn't have even known that I had it until it was too late. Right. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the way uh, that uh, I ended up uh, being able to go to the Mayo Clinic and being able to go in and have my procedure done, uh, I got in two weeks before the shutdown due to COVID. Mm. And if I had waited uh, until they were open again to be able to do the procedure that I needed, uh, the people who did my surgery and did the biopsy on the tumors and so forth uh, told me that it would have metastasized and I would have had uh, a, a huge and horrendous problem. Mm. But uh, they caught it just in the last minute, if you will, wow. before it spread, yeah. you know? And so on the one side of the coin, I see that there's this genetic component to uh, the cancer that I had. On the other side of the coin, I see the hand of God moving sovereignly in my life to bring about the healing that I needed so that I'm still around here doing this program for you guys today. Uh, you know, what do you do with this? You know, well, in the midst of all of this, you know, some scriptures, boy, you, you go through something like this and they jump off the page at you. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be delivered from bond the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of 
of the children of God. For now we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Well, what this passage is saying is, is that the fall of man had long-lasting consequences, including, uh, if you will, the de-evolution of man. We were created perfectly by God, but once sin and death entered the equation, it began to affect us. Mutations, breakdowns in our once perfect DNA began to be part of the equation. And, and you know, why certain strains of this breakdown or these mutations come along and say, create the cancer that myself, my brother, my grandfather had. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why uh, specifically uh, all those things came together. But I do know what its source is. The source is the fact that we live in a fallen world, that we are groaning together in travail until now. Now, when I realize that, it tells me something. I've got two choices when it comes to dealing with the fact that a doc sat across the table from a doctor said, I'm sorry, Mr. Richards, you've got cancer. If we don't do something about it, uh, you've got about five years to live, and your last few years are not going to be very pleasant. Well, that was pretty shocking stuff, but it didn't cause me to go, oh, where is God in all of this? How can there be a loving God in all of this? Well, it tells me something. It tells me that God, first of all, gave us the heads up that this world is fallen, that this world, as they say, is as close as a sinner will ever get to heaven because we see God's glory in it, but as close as a saint is ever going to get to hell because we experience that groaning together until now the Bible speaks of there. And so understanding that, understanding that the Bible does give wisdom and insight into this is key. But the other thing is really important. Not only did I see that, uh, well, it was um, the role of the genetic dice uh, that ended up giving me this cancer. It definitely had a genetic component in a sense. I was almost predestined from the time I was conceived to have this particular kind of cancer. But I also see that the hand of God was on this and how he sovereignly moved to put me in a place where he brought about healing as well. So, you know, whenever we find ourselves in a place where we go, oh, you know, this person, they have this condition, they can't help it, and, and you know, they have the, well, they can't help having the condition. But uh, one thing I think you were saying, Sean, that makes a lot of sense is this. We can help how we respond to that condition. Uh, we have a choice to make. You know, I can either, you know, throw a pity party and say, oh, I'm, you know, God was really mean to me. Uh, you know, so I'm not going to worship you anymore. Or we can say, okay, what does it mean for me to walk in faith in this set of circumstances, to realize that when Jesus was here, he didn't get the get-out-of-jail-free card and suffering in this world. In fact, he took all the suffering that was due us upon himself when he died on the cross. So to me, that's a far more constructive, far more healthy response, I think, than uh, just kind of throwing in the towel and saying, oh, this person has an inclination in this direction. It might be genetic, you know. Why would God give them more than they can bear? Well, God didn't give them more than they could bear. Uh, the Bible says that that's not true. Uh, we can handle anything that comes our way if we put our trust and our faith in God to see us through it. And, you know, I'd be the first one to tell you uh, that uh, it wasn't all sunshine and flowers when I went through what I went through, but, but God was with us every step along the way. Yeah. So. Yeah. Amen. So Amen. Here we is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just, just be careful tacking on those verses and saying that, uh, oh, well, how does this reconcile with that when that has nothing to do with this? We want to make sure we're not blaspheming like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kenneth, thank you for your question. hope that helps you out. It's definitely a huge topic in our world today more than ever, I, I believe. But um, a question here from 
Uh, Jessica, I've always understood creation to be complete uh, since God finished his work on the sixth day. However, new people are created all the time at conception. Does this mean creation is not complete? So is God still complete in his creation or is it complete? Uh, there's, a, there's two Hebrew words for create in the Bible. There's asa, think like assemble, means to create from pre-existing matter within the functions that God has uh, given yeah. to us with our universe that has a very fixed amount of matter and energy. And then there's bara, think like borrow, something outside that was introduced, in this case, from nothing. Uh, there's a car that bears a similar title. There's uh, divine fiat, is it? Yes. Fiat, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, make <laughs> the association. Not the sport car, but. <laughs> make the association, but God's exclusive ability to create out of nothing. Uh, while it is a miracle, uh, child's birth and conception does come from pre existing matter. If you haven't had this talk with your parents, I'll forego the details, but the point being made is our kind of creation <laughs> is very different from the creation that God did in Genesis chapter 1. Yeah, you know, when uh, the subject comes up, people always say, oh, well, we're seeing new stars forming, mm. we're seeing an act of creation. Well, no, we're seeing an act of the rearranging of already existing matter and energy hmm. in the creation. So uh, we have to be, as you say, uh, and, and it's really interesting to see the precision in which those words are used in the creation account, that God is about the business of uh, sustaining things and making new things every time there's a new season, uh, yeah. every time uh, spring is sprung, if you will, and all our allergies go crazy. It's an <laughs> example of the fact that God has rearranged pre-existing matter in such a way that we see new life, if you will, begin. It's not new in the sense that it's sprung out of nothing. Uh, there was a, uh, a theory called spontaneous generation uh, that was uh, popular that said that uh, maggots spontaneously arose from meat that was rotting. Mm. You know, that they just, something happened out of nothing. Yeah. Well, no, we find out that the flies came and laid their eggs on the rotting meat, and that's where they came right, from. Right. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me that the, uh, the centerpiece, the foundation stone of evolutionism is a process called abiogenesis, which uh, literally means that uh, nothing created everything, uh, that the entire universe is an uncaused effect. Now, none of us would sit there and say, oh yeah, rotting meat makes maggots. Um, no, it yeah. facilitates making maggots, right. but we'd go, oh, that's silly to think they just sprang out or, you know, how primitive people were. Yeah. But uh, the Big Bang Theory, in essence, uh, slaps, what, uh, about uh, 15 billion years on that and uh, says uh, that's how all things came to existence. Uh, nothing created everything. We don't know how. We don't know why, but uh, it just did. Yeah. Trust us. Yeah. <laughs> so it just sounds like meat to maggots. Uh, with a little astronomy thrown in and a few <laughs> billion years a on maggot? top. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, right. Absolutely. Well, Jessica, thanks. Um, thanks for that question. Hope that, that helps you out today. Thanks for being part of the show. Uh, question from Shoespeak. Uh, can you recommend any authors or teachers that focus on disciple-making strategies um, and bonus points for specifically with online-only relationships and friendships? Um, but maybe we can even talk about the biblical model for... Um, for discipleship as well, but that's who speaks question today. 
Yeah, there's a this great author, Paul the Apostle. Oh, I like <laughs> First and Second Timothy right. and <laughs> Titus. Those are all about discipleship. But if you want someone to walk through those things with you, um, as far as conversational techniques, always uh, go to Paul Copan's book, Tactics. Uh, great for not just evangelism, but also interfaith dialogues and being able to make sure you're not the loser when it comes to the tact at which you speak to people. But there's also uh, some good resources as far as just fundamental apologetics, uh, the sort of things that you need to know before getting out there, if that's what you mean by discipleship. But again, that just means to create a follower. Any book that would have to do with evangelism or the fundamentals of Christianity are great. Uh, one of our former pastors, Jason Jimenez, co-authored a book with uh, Norman Geisler. Uh, name's escaping me right now, but we do have it available. Do you remember the name of it? I do not. And it was a good apologetic resource I benefited through. As you can see, I read more of the inside than the cover. But the <laughs> interesting part as well is any good resource that you find that'll go over the fundamentals of Christianity, if they're being discipled in a particular area like evangelism, then I'd recommend I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by uh, Frank Turek and Norman Geisler. If they're going into more of an Islamic environment, I'd recommend Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi and The Critical Quran by Robert Spencer. I, If you're going into Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, then um, the... Uh, uh, what was its name? I know the author who wrote both the books, the title, The Forgotten Trinity, thank you, Brain, uh, by James White, or Is the Mormon My Brother by James White. Those are both great resources to disciple someone through. Just kind of uh, read through those resources and spend a lot of time in the verses that they reference. If you're just trying to get involved in the church, then I'd rec or even in ministry, I'd recommend Second by Pastor Romaine. He was a influence in our lives, and he probably wrote the smallest book out of all of these options. It's a little pamphlet, but a great resource if you're trying to understand the kind of heart that you'd bring to ministry and coming under someone in a church setting. But as far as the fundamentals of the faith, no better place to start than First and Second Timothy and Titus, just understanding what it means to be a Christian and to live in light of your calling. They are the pastoral epistles, but everyone can benefit from it in knowing that where you've been called, you can also be equipped. Yeah, um, as far as, you know, these are uh, like for apologetics and sharing your faith, but as far as like coming alongside a new believer and kind of getting them grounded, getting on their feet, there's a few books that I've uh, read down through time that have been helpful to me. Uh, one is by uh, Robert Coleman and Billy Graham. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like it's, you know, you look at it, first of all, you think it's about sharing your faith, but The Master Plan of Evangelism is based on the idea that Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, should be the, the paradigm, the, the marching orders, the compass heading, if you will, of the church. Mm -hmm. There Paul says, You therefore, my son, referring to Timothy, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, what uh, Coleman and, and Billy Graham uh, put forward in this book is this uh, really uh, remarkable idea that if uh, you and I say lead, uh, if you say I lead someone to Christ and I spend a year building into that person, getting familiar with God's word, understanding the basis of Christian doctrine, understanding the tools of growth that we find within the scripture, teaching them how to share their faith, spend a year doing that. Then after a year, just the two of us go out 
and win one other person to Christ and repeat that process for another year. Mm -hmm. If we kept that progression going, the entire world at its current population could be reached in 32 years. Wow. Let's yeah, do it. That's the <laughs> it, it's the miracle. Let's get busy. It's the miracle of compound interest. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, where does the thing fall apart? Well, you know, because we don't we don't do it. lead people to Christ or we don't disciple or yeah. so on. But the master plan of evangelism talks about that, gives you a really good outline of what you should cover and so on. I really like that. I think it's uh, because it's an older book, uh, seven sixty nine for paperback on uh, on uh, Amazon.com as I'm looking at it right now. Uh, another really great book on discipleship in general uh, is a book by Chuck Swindoll called Hand Me Another Brick. Uh, it is his verse-by-verse -verse study in the book of Nehemiah, but it has this kind of perspective on it, how we can build up one another in our walk with God, how we can uh, grow in our ability to be able to become uh, people that influence others uh, in our walk with God, how we can, uh, you know, if God calls us, be effective in Christian leadership. And so that would be another one uh, that I would uh, highly recommend. What was that again? Uh, Say that again. It's the... called Hand Me Another Brick okay. by Chuck Swindoll. Right. Uh, the other uh, ones that uh, that I would recommend, uh, there's a, a, a good outline uh, called Design for Discipleship that is put together by the Navigators Ministry. And uh, really what it is is uh, a, a way to... Uh, come alongside and help other people to grow in Christ and uh, to uh, uh, grow in Christ while we are doing so, I'm biblically grounded, and then be able to be equipped to be able to pass that blessing along. So uh, those would be uh, some of the books that I'd recommend along that line. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Sounds like right up uh, right up the alley there. Great. Well, speak. thanks for that question. hope that helps you out. There's some resources there for you. Um, and let's all get busy doing the stuff. So in 32 years, we can reach the whole world. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's challenging. Yeah. yeah. It's very challenging and encouraging too. Um, question from Glenn. Why didn't God tell Abraham specifically where to go? Uh, go to the land I send you. I would be afraid of being wrong instead of stepping out in faith. Does this apply to us today as well? Why didn't God tell Abraham where to go and then told him where to go? Well, he'd never seen. I guess the question is, why does God ask Abraham to go to a place that he had never seen before, yeah. leave his whole life behind and such? Kind of going well, you mean yeah. with Ur of the Chaldees or Moriah? Because those are two different things. Well, uh, leaving Ur of the Chaldees and going to a land that he would show them. And, uh, okay. you know, uh, I, I think... Sounds a bit vague. You well, know? yeah, if yeah. I can hazard a guess and throw something out there, um, one of the things I think that we really don't do very well ever since our ancestors hightailed off the bushes in the Garden of Eden is trust. And yet, isn't it mm -hmm. interesting how God has based our entire relationship with him on trust? Uh, you know, one of the things, Sean, you often uh, say on the program here is that faith is trust with reason. That's literally a, a great definition of what faith is all about. Well, what was Abraham's faith based on at that point? It wasn't based on the reasonableness of saying, okay, God, you know, that's a really good suggestion about uh, leaving, you know, what was the New York City of his day, uh, the epicenter of culture and progress and, and everything else, uh, to go out into the wilds and wilderness to a land he'd never seen. Uh, what was the gist of it? Well, God was putting Abraham in a place uh, where he had to trust him, where he had to say, I've got... Yeah. The, the, your best interest in mind, 
Uh, I've got a plan that I'm working out. Uh, this is going to end up uh, being something that you can't see now, but you will see then uh, that is going to bless every aspect of your life. Well, Abraham couldn't see that, but that was the first step of a number of steps of faith that Abraham had to make. You know, when God showed him the stars in the sky and said, you know, if you can count them, so shall your descendants be. And so, well, you know, that's an interesting proposition, God, but, yeah. you know, I don't have an heir and, you know, I'm over 90 and my wife ain't no spring chicken either. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't see how that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But we're told that against all uh, odds and against common sense and reason, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. Uh, and, and so this whole idea of trusting in God, uh, you know, why does God do that? for us. Why, out of all things, does Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why is faith the essence of our relationship with God? Well, I think what it comes down to is there's no higher or more sincere compliment you can give to anyone than what you're willing to trust them with. Right. You know, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, you know, in the past, I've been asked a couple of times uh, to be uh, the uh, godfather of, uh, you know, the uh, child that was born to a friend. And, and I always thought that was the most sincere statement that anybody could make about how they felt about me yeah. and my character, Absolutely. trusting me <laughs> to raise their child if something happened to them. Yep. Well, in the same way, when we come to God and we say, okay, I'm bringing to you uh, the most valuable thing that I have, my own life, mm. my own prospect of the afterlife mm. um, and I'm going to trust you mm. even though I've never seen heaven I'm going to trust that Jesus died for me even though I haven't seen Jesus die with my own eyes yep. I'm going to believe what your word said I'm going to believe the historical documents I'm going to believe uh, the, the work of your spirit I'm going to put my faith lean wholly on you and say this is my hope of everlasting life and God says when you do that that's how you get saved and I love that because that is uh, where we kind of check out from a lot of the tail chasing we get into. Oh, yeah. do I really mean it? You know, am I really, do I feel saved today? Do I not feel saved today? No, it's by faith. I trust God. I trust God is true to his promises. I trust that he is true to his word. I trust that Jesus is everything that he claimed to be. I trust that he is dwelling in my heart through his spirit right now. I trust in his power to do in and through my life what I could never do myself. And as I trust him, you know, the, the, the trust with reason thing kicks in, doesn't it? Right. And, and the, the more we learn to trust God moment by moment, and we see and, and taste and see that he's good, we see his faithfulness, then our faith grows, right? Right, and that's the whole reason why Abraham was such an exceptional figure. If we say, well, I could never do that, that's why you're you and not him. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So, but uh, be aware into each life, God will bring some very Abraham-like forks in the road, mm. if you will, where we're going to say, okay, am I going to trust God now or not? Right. Uh, or am I going to take things into my own hands? And I find when I take things into my own hands, and I have before, uh, life gets really bad really quick. Yeah. Uh, when I learn to trust God and walk in his ways, even when it doesn't make sense or I don't see results or it doesn't feel a certain way, but I continue just to trust God in the midst of things, then that uh, is the pathway of real blessing. Yeah, and the ultimate, like you said, the ultimate form of worship that we 
yeah. choose to trust him like you said as someone would trust you to be a godfather to trust god especially when we cannot see that is a great great form of worship yeah yeah, ultimate, yeah, yeah the trust. best yeah. yeah and without without faith it's impossible to to please god yeah yeah great question thanks for that um uh, Glenn, thank you. Appreciate you being part of the show and your question. We have a question from Torbeth. I heard a theory that Job resurrected when Christ was crucified, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, and this is how Job nineteen twenty-five is fulfilled. Any validity to this? Thanks. Have you guys oh, heard? Not a lot. The, the, the passage <laughs> in my Some? flesh, I I will see God. It's verse yeah. twenty-six. Yeah, twenty-six. Okay. Yeah, and well, then Matthew yeah. twenty-seven fifty-two. So okay. we're, we're one off. Well, well, yeah. well, uh, what, is, what does Matthew 27:52 say? Because that's a pretty controversial passage, isn't it? Yeah, let me start in verse 50. Jesus cried it again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So Matthew's speaking again to a Jewish audience and noting the significance of Jesus's death, that following the resurrection, he accomplished a greater resurrection. This is what later authors noted him as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You can see 1 Corinthians 15 for that. But if we're to, I guess, not necessarily eisegete, but kind of confuse that with Job's observation in chapter 19. What was the point of that statement? It was, again, let me read in verse 26. After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, not that I shall see saints in Jerusalem. Job wasn't a Hebrew. He wasn't even yeah. <laughs> uh, a relative of Abraham, and there was no reason to think that he was buried anywhere in the holy city or would have any association or reason or impact to interact with the citizens there. But if, on the other hand, we're to note this as a resurrection in the sense that even though his body was and had been in state for 2,000 years at this point, maybe more, he was in his flesh physically present with God, and that it goes on to note, unfortunately for Jehovah's Witnesses, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. So Job, the Job who was speaking, not some other Job, not some other person, but me specifically, I shall see, I shall be with God. Not a recreated Job. Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah. Uh, just so people yeah. don't think we're talking past them. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that you won't be resurrected, you'll be recreated, or at least a version of you with your memories, but it won't be you. So have fun with that. But the point being made is this, Job is speaking of his resurrection in relation to God, that the physical destruction of his body does not mean a spiritual separation from his Redeemer. At the lowest point in his life, that's his only hope, is that, you know what, when all is said and done, I'm going to be with God, and he'll settle this. That's the conversation point at that situation. But if we're asking Matthew 27 significance, the controversy is it's the only gospel that reports it, but that's not really a dismissal of it. The point of emphasis is that when the Messiah resurrected, many people benefited from that, and there were signs that accompanied it, and that 
every single gospel account would report that. Job's resurrection was him being brought to heaven. This resurrection was for the edification of people in Jerusalem, seeing that when Jesus died and rose again, that he wasn't the only one who benefited from it as a greater than Elisha. If you remember in the book of Second Kings, Elisha's corpse was tossed into an open grave when the Syrians were coming up on the hillside, and that his burial, his makeshift uh, tossing this body into the grave of Elisha, it raised the guy back to life. Right. That's the point of emphasis Matthew is making, is that like with Elisha, we saw this very same thing happen with Jesus, only at a much greater scale. The feeding of the 5,000 was the same way. Yeah, and, and just a note on this, because sometimes people will get uh, pretty picky about this. I think Bart Ehrman likes to go to town on uh, on this particular thing, because this is the, the only account that says this, and, and uh, you know, even some quasi um, apologists on the evangelical side will say, well, you know, it probably wasn't there. That was probably a, you know, an apocryphal interpretation, interpolation, uh, because it's only there in Matthew. Well, to me, that's kind of silly because you'd have to say the same thing about uh, the resurrection of Lazarus in the Gospel of John. Well, that couldn't have happened because it's only mentioned in the Gospel of John. Hmm. Well, Okay, uh, how about if John provided an addition of detail here? Hmm. You know, in fact, we don't see uh, any of the other gospel accounts mentioning this, but, uh, you know, again, we also don't see uh, the veil in the temple being torn from top to bottom, the earthquake, the rock split, the graves opened, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. Well, Jesus resurrected a number of people uh, during his ministry. Uh, and, uh, you know, we think about Lazarus, we think about Jairus' daughter, we think of the, uh, the widow uh, that, uh, that was, uh, was, had her son raised. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to, you know, throw a fit about this because it's only mentioned once, well, then any other event that we find in the scriptures that is only mentioned once uh, or is not mentioned in all of the Gospels, we got to go, oh, well, that's suspect. But I've, ne I've never run into any quasi-scholar or sort of or even apologist uh, who would say that, uh, well, then Lazarus didn't really resurrect because, you know, it's only there in the Gospel of John, and we don't hear anything else about Lazarus afterwards. I Some can think of one, but uh, I'll spare the embarrassment. The point being made, though, is this. A historical record is a historical record is a historical record. Multiple attestation, which is what they're demanding, is one of the ways that we verify the validity of a historical report. If multiple people say the same basic details about an event, that makes it much more likely to be true. In fact, if you have two minimum sources, that makes it as good as gold historically. If you have one source they try to exasperate that and say, we don't have this form of evidence to support this, therefore just dismiss it all as myth. That may fly if you're doing biblical criticism, but any other event in history that would follow that standard means that we know zero around a thousand years ago. And if we're going to play by that stricture, then eliminate the entire field of historical criticism altogether. It's inconsistency at its finest. If Matthew's account can be taken at base value, we don't judge it based on standards it doesn't meet. We judge what can be tested and use the other information that we can't to come to a rational conclusion. Now, 
to their credit, uh, maybe the more well-intended, may say, well, we're just trying to make sure this wasn't edited or they didn't add mythological records. There's a better case to be made about the controversy around the first uh, verses of John 8 or uh, perhaps 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. But we actually know that those were additions and editings, and I, I disagree, but they, they make the case because we have other copies that don't include this, because we actually have evidence that shows the contrary. We don't have Matthew accounts that forego this passage. No, we don't have, all of them. Yeah. We don't have uh, accounts that would contradict this, just in ex, uh, focusing on other details regarding Jesus' resurrection, like, say, for instance, the eyewitnesses. But the point of emphasis that Matthew's making is with the Jewish audience in mind, and he does this throughout the Gospel. We call that consistency an internal critique, not an external critique, saying one of 15 forms of historical criticism aren't met here, therefore it's mythology. That's not how you do history. That's how you get uh, interviews on CNN. Yeah. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Right. Well, right on the end of the show, can you do a rapid bullet question? Sure. Yeah. Uh, this is just a small one here from Annie. Um, does taking the mark of the beast condemn one, or is there redemption from that? And this Yes, it condemns. No, there's no redemption from it. <laughs> yeah. That's too yeah. quick. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> and uh, will people know they're taking the, the mark of the beast is a yes. follow-up question. Yeah, yeah. And, and we and, just have a minute, so you good know, luck and, with this. And Revelation 14, <laughs> uh, the angel warns about taking the mark of the beast. These are angels that are flying through mid-heaven basically broadcasting the everlasting gospel. 144,000, first half of the tribulation. Now that the mark of the beast has been introduced, you exposed yourself without it, you're going to be killed. So the angels are now the ones sharing the gospel at the second half of the tribulation. Mm -hmm. And the angel says that anyone who worships the beast and receives his mark uh, will uh, not be saved, will be in everlasting uh, judgment. Now, there's a twofold thing there. There is receiving the mark of the beast. How do you receive the mark of the beast? By worshiping the beast. Mm. In other words, by pledging your fealty to him, by saying the beast is my God, and so on. Apparently, you cross that line, there's no turning back. Mm. There's no redemption from that, wow. according to Revelation 14. So, you know, again, uh, to whom much is given, much is required. Uh, while you're standing there waiting for your mark, so to speak, you've got to ignore the voice of this angel flying in mid-heaven yeah. go ahead and do that. So it's not going to be accidental. Right. It's not going to be because you got a vaccine or anything else like that. Yeah, that's no, good to yeah. know. Or <laughs> that you attended church. Yeah. 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 Thank you for being part of uh, Reason for Hope. We'll be back same time tomorrow. God bless you guys. God Have a wonderful you. evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.